DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome back to today's Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We come to the end of another week, week 27 for all of us of doing this show uh, by remote as the pandemic uh, continues. Um, We're going to set aside election politics uh, just for today, although there's certainly a lot happening in that world. And in the weeks ahead, you'll hear um, um, much discussion about it on the show, obviously. But we're going to turn our attention to public health again today. And and, um, we have a wonderful special guest to discuss that uh, with our group. So let me get right to introducing people. Jim Galloway is with me, of course, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who joins me as my partner on the show on Mondays and Fridays. Jim, one of the reasons we wanted to do this show, I think it's fair to say, is I've said on the show, and you said in a just wonderful column uh, last week or a little longer ago than that, the attacks on CDC, the attempts to undermine this remarkable public health organization, the gold standard of global health, public uh, health organizations, is they're talking about our neighbors, Jim. Um, These are the people who work at CDC day in and day out to uh, help us understand disease, combat disease. They're literally my neighbors. I live just down the street from the uh, Clifton Road campus of the CDC. And and so, Jim, I really felt it was important that we talk about what the best of what CDC is, as well as with our group today, get into more about the coronavirus. But uh, Jim, I'm certainly glad you're here to share that discussion today. Oh, no, I appreciate you inviting me here. I mean, 8,500 people are, are employed in, in, in Metro Atlanta uh, by the CDC. Uh, if if you don't have a neighbor or a relative or a friend or a member of your church or synagogue who is who is a member, then you're not looking hard enough, because they're they're they, 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 these people are us. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, let me also welcome Karen Landman. Doctor Karen Landman is back to join us for this show again. Karen, it's a real pleasure to have you back. We want to remind our listeners that you are a practicing physician, you're an epidemiologist, but you're also a journalist, and and you cover uh, uh, medicine, public health issues, uh, and you have a a specialty in epidemiology. So uh, it's very good to have you back with us today, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor to be uh, alongside such a distinguished panel. Well, and that leads me to introduce our our special guest. It really is an honor uh, to have with us today, Dr. James Curran. Dr. Curran has been the dean of the Rollins School of Public Health and a professor of epidemiology for 25 years there. Um, In 1981, Dr. Curran was one of the leaders in public health who first began putting his arms around understanding the AIDS virus, began working on researching it, getting uh, communicating what AIDS was as the understanding of it grew, and then went on to uh, lead the uh, task force on AIDS at the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, And then I think, Dr. Kern, I'm right that you oversaw the HIV AIDS division. And while you were at the CDC, you were uh, named assistant uh, surgeon general. If I got that pretty much right, Dr. Kern? It's pretty good as much as I can remember it, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's just a great, a great pleasure uh, to have you here today. And, and before we talk about uh, the work of CDC, before we talk about where the virus stands today, I, I think it's important, given your position at Rollins, that we give you just an opportunity to talk for a couple of minutes about the work that you're doing at Rollins and have been doing since uh, the coronavirus emerged uh, on, on dealing with that with the pandemic. You, you said in an interview uh, not long ago, um, here's what you said about what one of the things that Rollins and other public health agencies were going to have to do. We need to understand the underlying causes of the large disparities in mortality rates. We must 
foster more transparent communications between countries and agencies. We need to evaluate our surveillance methods. And then you said the key thing, this pandemic will be a defining moment in our careers. Talk about what you've been working on at Rollins for a couple minutes. Well, Bill, um, you know, uh, the coronavirus epidemic is the public health crisis of the century. We've never had anything like this in our lifetime. And I remember my father telling me when I was young that uh, World War II was a defining event and everything else in the world would be different afterwards. And I think we're going to see that with COVID. You know, we keep hoping it's going to be over soon, but a lot of the changes we see and a lot of the things that will happen are going to happen as a result of COVID. And I think we're not going to think of things the same way. And one of those is public health. <clears throat> I think that uh, in my many years at Emory, sometimes uh, our graduate students, and we have 1,500 graduate students at Rollins. We're one of the largest schools in the country. Um, but but uh, our graduate students say, their parents would say, what is public health? What are you doing about this? But now, of course, there's an epidemiologist on TV every hour and a half. Um, and, and that people are understanding uh, the importance of public health and the differences it can make. It's also exposed a lot of the, the uh, infrastructure problems. We've had a long-term neglect of state and local public health, not just in Georgia, but throughout the country. And I'm chair of the Board of Public Health of the state, and I know that it's always kind of the last place uh, to get money. Uh, it's usually Medicaid or, or uh, education in, uh, in what is a usually limited state budget. But now we're seeing the uh, we're paying the price for that. We're seeing that state and local public health can't keep up. We're seeing that uh, CDC doesn't have as modern infrastructure as it should have. But it still remains uh, the premier public health agency in the world. And CDC makes Atlanta really the public health capital of the country and certainly maybe even of the world. Uh, yeah, um Dr. Kern, if you could expound a little bit on something you just just said that 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 the, the corona this, this pandemic is going to change the way we look forever. Where 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 would we look that? I I think last time you and I talked, you 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 were your one for instance you had was uh, was uh, nursing homes. But uh, I would imagine that you know even I mean we're we're right now we're going through the struggle with classrooms with what they have to look look like. Uh, what's what what is being discussed in your in 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 classrooms, in 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 Emory School of Public Health? Well, you know, we get used to uh, as citizens and, and people of living in a certain landscape with certain kinds of conditions, uh, and we we know, for example, that you know we all we know is what our own experiences in our own country. When epidemics come along or when hurricanes come along, our life changes. And COVID is like a national hurricane or a global hurricane in a sense that it, it changes the way we look at things. We no longer think that it's uh, okay for all of us to breathe on each other. We get more nervous about people coughing in front of us. We start thinking that maybe we shouldn't be in a crowded elevator. And that's not going to change. We're going to take that memory with us, and it's going to change what we consider to be unacceptable. And a lot of times improving the health of populations means redefining the unacceptable. You know, many of us are old enough to go back to think about when 40% of Americans smoked. And we all thought that's just normal. Everybody smokes. And now we're down less than 20% and we say, why are you smoking in front of me? Uh, so I think that this is going to change the way we think about respiratory infections. It's going to change the way we think about um, going to work. And we're going to end up with, uh, hopefully, we'll be together more than we are now. But there's going to be more remote learning. There's going to be more remote work. Uh, and I think we're going to not go to supermarkets as often. People are getting used to having their food delivered. Um, I don't know about movie theaters, but, you know, Netflix and, and uh, Amazon Prime are doing quite well. But I think the main thing in the health point of view is that we're going to change the way we think about public health threats. And that's going to be with us for quite a while. You can tell that we aren't used to it because... Our, our approach, you know, politics aside, our approach to COVID has been one of um, wishful thinking and denial. We keep saying, well, it's going to be over soon, you know, and we always put ourselves a couple months ahead. There are reasons to be optimistic, but there certainly are not reasons to see that our performance has, has validated that. 
Uh, uh, Dr. Curran, uh, and Karen, I want to bring you into the conversation in a minute, but but let me f first ask you um, to, to talk to us a little bit about the Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Curran. Um, just uh, because I'm not sure people understand uh, they know what they, you know, kind of in general, what an important agency it's been, but there's been so much uh, undermining of the work of CDC lately that people may need to be reminded. So uh, just as a starting point, uh, the agency was founded back in 1946, and it was initially uh, uh, here in Atlanta. It was, it was uh, uh, based here in Atlanta primarily, I think, because malaria was the disease that the agency was founded to address, and malaria was, of course, uh, a, a southern uh, illness. And of course, from there, it expanded to the global mission it has today. But, but Dr. Hearn, I'd like to take you back, if I could, to 1981, because it seems to me that when you and your team first started recognizing, you were studying, I believe, STDs in the gay population in the United States, maybe worldwide, you'll correct me, and you began getting reports of requests for a, a, a pharmaceutical, a drug to address a condition that wasn't one you were familiar with, and it was those early indications that began the work you did and CDC did on AIDS. And I think that story's worth talking about just a little bit to help people understand the value of uh, CDC. Well, we were engaged in uh, uh, the, the initial trials of hepatitis B vaccine in gay men in the United States. And he uh, hepatitis B was transmitted sexually, particularly in the gay community. And when there were five uh, ultimately fatal cases of a scavenger-type opportunistic infection, which uh, were, was occurring, it's called pneumocystis carinii pneumonia. And this was occurring in previously healthy people it had only been seen before in, in uh, essentially dying cancer patients or people with no immune systems. So we set up a surveillance mechanism to look around the country and began reporting cases every week. And they were doubling every, uh, every few weeks. Um, the administration, the Reagan administration, uh, didn't give us any money. And there was a hiring freeze. And there was a you know difficulty in dealing with this. But that was really a a sin of neglect rather than interference. We always had a chance to speak up. We always had a chance to write our own MMWR articles, and then we would speak about them. And, and so I was on TV and talked to you, Bill, and other people many times um, about these problems, and, and we were never kept away from the press to help in, interpret the data. That's different now. Now there's money, but there's no, there's no leadership in, in visibility at that level. So the many, many articles that CDC puts out are simply not available. There's no spokespeople available for it. And that's really a, almost more dangerous than the lack of money. I think, Karen, I, think, I want uh, to, you know, it's interesting. If, if just if just, ahead, just, just to, to put a finer point on that, uh, Dr. Kern, I think what you said was was that in uh, earlier was that uh, that d during the AIDS uh, d during the, the AIDS crisis, it was a matter of n uh, administrative neglect rather than administrative interference that we have now. Yes, well, President Reagan didn't say the word AIDS in public until 1987, about six years after the first cases were reported. Um, but he didn't stop us from talking about it. You know, and, he, and, and there was good leadership at the HHS level and at the, at the uh, CDC level that allowed that to happen. Now, that isn't to say that there was a, a lot of attention paid to it, but it also wasn't the third leading cause of death in the country and transmitted through the respiratory route. Um, Karen, I want to uh, dig down a little bit into what, doc, what Dr. Curran just said about the MMWR, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. This is one of the most important tools of communication of any public health agency <clears throat> in the world, right? And Dr. Curran points out how it was put to use to help communicate this new virus back in the early 80s that no one had ever heard of before. And Karen, that is one of the tools of CDC that's being undermined by the administration today, which insists on having editorial control over what goes out in that MMWR every week. Karen? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's, 
representative of something that I hear from my sources at CDC, which is a general effort to really interfere at every level with the communications um, that CDC has with the public. From uh, from what I understand from, from folks I've talked to there, um, this is not subtle. Um, they uh, There are um, embedded politicos, um, uh, political operatives who um, simply prevent uh, the people doing the science from um, appearing on television shows, speaking with journalists, um, and not having the kinds of conversations that um, would be understood by the people who don't read the MMWR, you know, and to help kind of interpret um, the findings that are in the MMWR for the public. So, it's not, uh, you know, the censorship is happening at the level of the science that's getting out, certainly, but it's also happening at the level of, um, you know, letting the people who interpret the science for the public do their job. So there's a, a, a concerted and very real effort um, on the part of, a, of a political um, operatives to, to censor that message. Galloway, um, I, I think I'm about to make a statement that is naive. But, but I want to make it anyway. Um, this does not have to be a partisan conversation, I don't think. I think it is, I know people listening to the show who happen to be conservatives and who are certain to start tweeting about, about the, uh, uh, what they think is a liberal uh, uh, conversation about CDC and about public health in general. But, but the reality is uh, there's no reason in the world why Republicans— uh, who support the administration can't be just as concerned about uh, elevating the public health agencies like CDC to the rightful status in the in the conversation. I so maybe I'm being naive, but we don't we can be bipartisan in our belief that an agency like CDC is crucial right now. We we can we can uh, we can we can be bipartisan about an issue like this, but we choose not to. Uh, uh, we, we look. We've got a, a president whose reelection likely hinges on 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 public judgment of how he's handled uh, this this virus. There's been plenty of criticism, uh, uh, and you've got in the background. And, and well, and it's it's not just the coronavirus. I mean, look, we've we've had decades of of anti science bias creep into the political discussion, and a lot of it has come on the Republican side. I mean, you you take a look at climate change, you go go back to tobacco. You go back to tobacco. Uh, Dr. Curran mentioned 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 smoking, but if you if you uh, what's happening now on uh, with the coronavirus uh, pandemic really mirrors to a great deal what happened with the debate over tobacco. Uh, and the and the 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 countervailing the 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 so-called science that was brought to counter the 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 real science. Um, Karen, go ahead. Jump in. You know, something that you can't leave out of that conversation is the interest of industry in both of those um, events. There was a, a huge tobacco industry whose interests would be supported by. Um, uh, by pushing back against the public health science and messaging that was coming out during the time of, of Surgeon General Coop. Um, and um, a lot of folks are suspicious that there's something to be gained uh, by industry in um, controlling the science around COVID now. So um, I, I don't think we can ignore the, the possible role that a profit motive uh, might have in sort of political maneuverings right now. Dr. Curran, jump in on this. So, you know, this, this, uh, this personalized criticism of scientists at the CDC and the FDA uh, calling them seditionists and things like this is not just impolite and uh, deplorable and demoralizing. It is that. Uh, but it's very, very short-sighted. And think of it this way. Think about who's going to be telling us that the vaccine is safe and effective. Um, these are the people that are the seditionists. These are the people who have been labeled as untrustworthy. And now we're supposed to believe them when they say that the vaccine is safe and effective. The other thing that this does is it creates a counter criticism. People listening to this show right now are going to think, well, we're just people who don't want to see Trump reelected. That's, this is not what this is about. Public health does not have to be partisan in an epidemic. In the AIDS epidemic, you know, Orrin Hatch and, and uh, Senator Kennedy uh, co-authored the Ryan White Care Bill. Uh, George Bush 
uh, passed PEPFAR legislation. So this is not necessarily Republican-Democratic. But now what happens is you have criticism, and then anybody who criticizes the president, uh, like um, Mario Cuomo says, well, I'm not sure we trust the FDA uh, because they may be interfered with, so we're going to have our own panel review this. Now, this will be criticized as a Democratic criticism of the Republican position. It's nonsense. This is a question of whether the vaccine is safe and effective. We don't know that because if we knew that, we wouldn't have to do the trials. And, and the public needs to have trust in the results. And the trust comes from a trust in the nonpartisan scientists, not in the trust of either the Democrats or the Republicans. So it's more than demoralizing and impolite and deplorable. It's really short-sighted. Dr. Curran, uh, what you just said is important to follow up on, I think. Uh, you talk about trust in a vaccine. Um, we now see polling, which shows us a plurality of Americans in many of the polls that have been conducted on this subject uh, say they won't get vaccinated because, largely because they don't trust at this point that a vaccine will be safe uh, for them to take and efficacious beyond that. So, Dr. Curran, there, as you point out, there are real-world consequences to this diminishing of the agencies that we usually have relied on to give us straightforward scientific information. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in, in terms of that, uh, let's listen just for a minute here. Uh, uh, Dr. Fauci, uh, was uh, did a program the other day for for Emory University uh, and it, with Sanjay Gupta, Dr. Gupta from CNN, who I think is an adjunct uh, professor at Emory University, isn't he, uh, uh, Dr. Curran? Gupta, he's a, he's a he's a real professor at Emory University and actually oh, still does surgery, greeting okay. Memorial Hospital. Wow. Oh, okay, okay. So let's listen to uh, Fauci talking about uh, his concerns. Uh, he's asked about concerns about the reliability or the public's uh, a willingness to trust in, the, in, in a vaccine. And here's what he said to Dr. Gupta. Now, then the FDA, which has said publicly that they would let their career scientists make the analysis separately of the data. Then they call in an advisory group called the VERPAC, which is completely independent. And they ask their advice as to whether it's safe enough and effective enough to go ahead. Once they do that, the data become public. So then people like me and Carlos and Colleen can look at the data. So if somebody's trying to do, and, and that's the elephant in the room that everybody's asking, is anybody gonna do an end run for political reasons? That will be completely transparent because the data will become public. So if it works the way it works, the way it should work, we should be able to say with scientific confidence that this is a safe and effective vaccine. And I don't think very many people appreciate how many fail-safe checkpoints there are in that process. Yeah, yeah Bill, Bill, what's interesting here is that in, in, in addition to, 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 to what uh, Dr. Curran has said, what, what's also being lost here is, is the, the FDA and the CDC's ability to police itself, you know, to, 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 to reexamine earlier f findings, find out if they still hold up, and if they don't hold up, change them. And if they change them, you know, to, to still maintain faith in, 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 in the people who were, who were doing the policing. I'm, I'm, I'm looking back to, to uh, 1955, when, when it was the CDC that found uh, that discovered that some uh, some uh, 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 polio vaccine uh, that that had been that had that was just that, that was just faulty and it was causing a number of polio cases around the country. It was the CDC who tracked that down and fixed it. It was the cutter, uh, Dr. Curran. That's an important. Yeah, that's an important point, uh, Dr. Curran, uh, because what's happening uh, today as we look at uh, uh, 
work being done on coronaviruses. The public ex- expects that uh, agencies like CDC will be perfect from the beginning, even as they deal with a new virus. And every time they have to change to some extent their uh, advisories about the virus or whatever, they're uh, being accused of, of uh, in fact, uh, being either manipulative, uh, politically motivated, or just not very smart. Well, CDC is not only the gold standard of public health, but agencies like the CDC are among the most trusted in the country. I mean, our country doesn't trust a lot of people for a lot, for very much. And during the COVID epidemic with high unemployment and um, police violence and racism and all sorts of other things going on and a highly partisan election, uh, the CDC still has a higher trust level than uh, either the president or the Congress or virtually anybody else. So it's important not to tear that down. I mean, who do we have that we can trust in our country if we can't trust the people at the CDC and the FDA? Aren't these people the ones who are doing their, you know, spending their career doing this? They're not trying to get reelected. They're not trying to, uh, to, to become extremely wealthy. They're just devoted to their job, and the job is very important for all of us. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and uh, come back with more uh, on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. On Political Rewind today, we're really delighted to be joined by Dr. James Curran, who's the dean of the Rollins School of Public Health and a professor of epidemiology. He's been doing that for 25 years on the Emory campus at Roland, and we're also Rollins, and we're also joined by Karen Landman, a physician, an epidemiologist, and a journalist, and of course Jim Galloway is uh, with us as he is on every Monday and Friday. Karen, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna do a thing that you know a defense lawyer, or for that matter, the prosecutor is never supposed to do: ask a question I don't have some notion of the answer of. But you, uh, in terms of your writing. In, in August, you wrote an article called Lessons Lost, how, quote, outbreak culture is shaping the COVID response. Help us understand what that means and why it's significant, and then we'll get Dr. Curran into conversation as well. Yeah, Bill, that was actually an interview with the author, um, one of the co-authors of a book uh, called Outbreak Culture that sort of looked at the way the world responds to outbreaks through the lens of the Ebola outbreak. And this was written before the COVID uh, pandemic was even, uh, you know, on the on the radar. Um, and, uh, and the, you know, the, the thrust of the book um, is that um, the initial reaction of a lot of folks, and, and this is a, a pretty destructive reaction, is to um, uh, find incentives um, that misalign with public health in the response to the pandemic, whether it's a political incentive, whether, like I said earlier, it's a profit motive, or um, some other sort of personal gain that's going to come out of the response to the pandemic. And that often overrides the actual um, uh, pro-public health response to a pandemic. And that's um, not really good for the public. Um, uh, but it, it, it nevertheless is often the overriding features of a response. And unfortunately, we've seen it really um, be the, the primary feature of the response in the United States um, to the COVID pandemic. Political priorities, industry priorities, um, and personal priorities have really seemed to overtake public health priorities and in the response on a lot of levels. Dr. Curran, comment on that if you would. Well, I think that, you know, if you look at sort of all epidemics, um, we live in a a country which, you know, is, of course, increasingly close to other countries and globalization has brought people closer together. But we usually only respond best to threats that we perceive to our own country and our own people. So, um, you know, there were 26 uh, uh, Ebola epidemics before the big one a few years ago. 
And most Americans didn't even know what Ebola virus was or actually care much about it. And we don't care much about cholera, malaria, a lot of other things that happen in developing worlds that kill thousands and thousands of people. But when the Ebola patients came to the United States, only a handful, and they were actually coming and threatened their lives were threatened at Emory University Hospital and other places, it became real to us. And when we had to start screening everybody for Ebola that came into Hartsfield Airport, people started saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, this affects me. Hmm. And, that may, and, and, you know, the AIDS epidemic kind of started in the U.S. Now, it really didn't, but it was discovered in the U.S. And by the time we found out what a horrible epidemic it was in the continent of Africa, we had so many doctors and so many people in our country working on it scientifically that the concern moved over to the PEPFAR concern on the African continent. Had it only started in Africa, we probably would not have paid as much attention to it. And I think that's part of the trouble we had with COVID in the very beginning. We had an epidemic in China. Uh, now, they handled it extremely well. But, of course, we would never learn anything from China because, of course, we're so competitive with China. We can't even look at what they do and say that maybe they did something right. But we just figured, well, this won't happen to us. Uh, we're a long ways away. You know, we can control this. We're the United States. We have the best doctors and the best scientists and the best tests and all this type of thing. And it kind of snuck up on us. I think we, we kind of hoped that we would be better than that. And then when we found out we weren't, we just didn't act right. Um, and and, that, and that's, you know, that's part of our isolationist psyche, I think. And, and, and of course, I'm not an isolationist. And I, I hate to see the countries of the world go back to that. And there's kind of a, a moving back toward nationalism, which I think is overall very harmful. We could have learned a lot from Korea, South Korea, Taiwan and, and China uh, and even Italy to begin with. Uh, Jim, uh, what Doctor what Doctor Kern is saying, of course, plays into this year's political campaign. Um, and Karen uh, started it actually. Uh, the uh, Trump uh, campaign uh, has uh, repeatedly said that the Obama administration, Joe Biden, Vice President, uh, did not handle Ebola well. They flubbed that from the very start. And of course, the reality is that we never had Ebola. Uh, within the borders of the United States it, 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 as, a, as a particular public health threat. No, you had it here as, a, as a, uh, you had folks flown here for treatment, uh, which is a wholly another yes. matter. Although I can, I, I will tell you, I can remember when it was impossible to get a pizza delivered to Emory University uh, because of, because of uh, the, the, uh, 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 the Ebola concern. And, and it, what's interesting, of course, is that happened under President, o it did happen under President Obama's watch. So you, you had a, a, a different sector of the public willing to criticize and willing to acknowledge even the danger of o o Ebola. Uh, uh, it's kind of the flip side of what we've got today. Uh, if if I could uh, just uh, just drift a little away from the topic before we before we leave, I, I, uh, Dr. Landman has so many good sources in the CDC. I would really like to hear more about uh, about how employees there are reacting. I mean, uh, I haven't seen any signs of 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 public rallies in support of these people. Uh, I I don't know what the email chains are saying. Uh, but but we do want to, you know, I do, at least on this program, we want to wish them well. Um, I think they would appreciate that. Uh, it is a really tough time for folks at CDC and in state and local public health in general. Um, I think a lot of them feel, um, you know, they've been ground down to the bone. Many of them have not had a day off in months. And, um, and at the same time, you know, they're doing very important high stakes work. Um, that is often suppressed by uh, not just political leadership, but also by institutional leadership that's cowed by the threat of political um, retaliation uh, if they go off message. You know, a lot of the leaders of state public health departments are appointees of governors. And so if a governor has a political um, uh, goal, with their response to the pandemic, that's going to trickle down to the way uh, state and local public health is managed, much the way 
um, the, the federal political goals trickle down to the way CDC is managed. So the top layer of leadership at all of these places uh, may be saying things that really don't represent the amount of work and devotion and dedication and interest in improving public health at the, the, lower, um, the lower levels. And I think that's been really, really uh, difficult for folks um, who are doing that work. You know, the, the partisan craziness is so bad that if, if CDC changes its mind on something, it's assumed to be directed from Washington. So, I mean, uh, obviously, some of the things are if the, uh, the idea not to test close contacts of people with COVID was clearly a political um, uh, interference. The issue of aerosols and particles, you know, as Tony Fauci has pointed out, doesn't really make that much difference. So if they do a clarification, it's automatically assumed to be a Republican interference. I think that there's no reason why every elected political official in Georgia couldn't defend the CDC. It needn't be seen as a criticism of the president. I mean, if you defend the CDC, you're not criticizing the president. You're defending the CDC. The CDC is a treasure for our state and our nation. You don't have to say the president's a bad guy. You just have to say the CDC does extremely important work. And we're proud of the 8,500 employees in our state. Why can't we say that? Why can't every governor say that? Why can't every representative say that? Why can't every mayor say that? Because they're afraid if they do that they're going to the president's going to say, "Oh, you shouldn't do that." Well, that's ridiculous. I think, um, Bill, there's uh, there's also a concern among. Uh, well, it may appear that. Um, Holding up CDC as really where we should be looking for our science, uh, giving them additional credit may make people wonder why we're not hearing more from CDC. You know, why, if we're so proud of CDC, they are not uh, a public voice. Not only that, why CDC isn't doing actually more science. You know, I think folks at CDC would really like to be doing more research um, about how the virus is transmitted and communicating more with the public about how that's transmitted. But looking downstream, I, I think the, the folks making politically driven decisions are not stupid. I think if they hear, you know, that CDC, that people are looking to CDC for answers, um, then people may start asking why CDC isn't doing the, the research to get those answers. And, you know, the question downstream from that is, well, what if we learn something that actually requires industry to respond differently, you know, re requires um, politicians to respond differently? So I think, you know, there is a political interest in um, kind of waving hands in front of CDC saying there's not a lot to see here. And if there is anything to see here, maybe you shouldn't trust it. Um, it, it's, it's not a, I, it, I think it is a, a short-sighted decision when it comes to public health, but I think it's a shrewd decision if you are a political person who wants to, um, uh, you know, kind of subvert what's actually happening in the in the public health sphere. If, let's 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 give a give a a, a, a bit of some specific Let's be specific about this. Specificity. Uh, okay. I got yeah, you there back, we go. Galloway. <laughs> All right. In in mid June, okay, in mid June, uh we had a we had a a, a an overnight day, day uh overnight uh campground up in North Georgia. Uh I think there were 600 uh 6 600 campers and staff. And you had this tremendous. They were at least superficially wearing masks and 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 doing the social distancing thing. But there was a very very uh, rapid out outbreak of coronavirus. The uh, uh, the the report on that came out from came out from the CDC on August seventh. There was not a single mention of the implications that had. For for the opening of school, which was beginning in Georgia, even as that report came out, and the question, uh, and and Doctor Doctor Kern and I have talked about this before. Why wasn't that a part of the report? Why wasn't that implication mentioned in in that report? It was probably because uh, you had a, a Trump administration. Uh, 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 official saying that he did not that that he he viewed it as an a attack on 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 President Trump's uh, effort to get schools open. So uh, so what we Dr. have Kirk is is we have we have discussions that ought to be happening that aren't happening. So we have a you Dr. know we Kirk? have a, a combination of uh, of political interference and wishful thinking. There's a lot of things that we that might be true, 
that we uh, we don't really want to explore too much because they'll change our minds. Now, I don't mean that just because the campground and CDC talk about it that we shouldn't open the schools, but we should be transparent about the facts and what we do and don't know. This is, of course, true of the vaccine, too. We're optimistic about the vaccine because most people who recover from COVID have an antibody response. We also know that a lot of them lose the antibody response. So the question is, if we have a vaccine, is, is it effective and safe? And then if it is effective, how effective? And then if it's, a, if it's 50 to 80% effective, how long does that efficacy last? Is it effective for six months or for lifetime? And, you know, if we have a vaccine that's like a flu vaccine, which is good for a year and is half effective, that's going to be quite different from one that wishful thinking would take us as like a measles vaccine. And there are studies that can be done that can push this along. You know, how frequent is reinfection with COVID? We know it happens sometimes. How often does it happen? And how often, how, how often in each month after you've been infected does it happen? That may tell you something about the immune response six months and 12 months out. When we have a vaccine, we're not going to know if it works for a year because we're going to license it before a year. I'm in the trial, and I get my second dose October 5th. So we, we want to make some decision in November. You've got one month of data from me to, to tell you something. And uh, you're welcome to it. I'll be transparent if I knew myself what I had, but that's not a lot of data. But, it, it, you know, we're, we're a work in progress as we move along. And we have a little bit of reason to be optimistic, but it shouldn't be wishful thinking. We're going to be wearing masks and social distancing for quite a while yet. So don't give up your Zoom. <laughs> Dr. Kern, before we get to a break, which I've got to do fairly quickly, I do want to follow up on what you just said about the trial that you're in right now. And could we know something in November? I mean, obviously, the president is pushing hard that we have some word that perhaps a vaccine becomes available before the election. But you're not suggesting, I don't think, realistically, that you imagine there will be a vaccine available uh, in the next month, do you? Well, I think what's going to happen, and, and I want to give the, the administration quite a bit of credit for the, uh, the bets that they're hedging. They put billions of dollars into buying and ordering vaccines that uh, have a chance of working. Now, of course, if they aren't effective, you could say the billions might be wasted. But I think if you hedge your bets enough, that'll really speed things up. If a vaccine is shown to be efficacious and we have several hundred million doses almost ready to go, that, that's really pretty good. And it's worth wasting a few billion dollars uh, on betting those things. On the other hand, you know, we're not going to know the long-term efficacy or even the moderate-term efficacy uh, anytime in the next few months. The trials just started. But they're going to look at the results. And, for example, let's say in my trial, I'm scheduled to be in this trial for two years. Uh, that means that People want to know what's going to happen over two years, both in terms of side effects and any kind of uh, efficacy. Now, if they, if they look at the thing and they say, well, it looks like the people getting the vaccine are doing much better and it's safe, then what they'll probably do is, they'll, if I have a placebo, they'll probably give me the vaccine. But they'll still want to follow me for two years to find out how long this works. And this is a process which we can anticipate, and we should be describing to the public to make it credible for how, you know, how and if they should get the vaccine and how and if we should provide it to developing countries. You know, the, the motivation to give this to the world, if it's only a little while, uh, it isn't going to be there. All right. Uh, we got to get to our final break of the show, and we'll be back in just a minute with the uh, remainder of Political Rewind. We're back on Political Rewind. Just a couple of quick program notes before we continue our conversation. Uh, number one, uh, President Trump is scheduled to name the successor or his choice to succeed Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, in the Supreme Court tomorrow afternoon. That's uh, Saturday afternoon at 5 o'clock. NPR will cover uh, his announcement live. We'll carry it on the uh, NPR network in the state of Georgia. Number two, uh, I'm finally going back on the couch this coming Monday with Dr. Ray Kotwicki, 
a psychiatrist and chief medical officer at Skyland Trail. I initially was going to do my therapy session with him a week ago, but the Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, story really preempted that. We're going to talk about the emotional the emotional and mental stresses of the virus, some of which I feel. And uh, so this is not just about me. This is about all of you out there. We'll talk to Dr. Kotwicki on uh, Monday. Um, Dr. Curran, I want us to make a quick comment about Ebola. And very quick, I learned how remarkable the scientists and doctors at, at uh, Emory are during the Ebola crisis. When I got to the interview, one of the best interviews I've ever been privileged to do, Ian Crozier, the doctor who had one of the most severe cases of Ebola coming back from West Africa, and one of the docs who took care of him, Dr. Jay Varkey. I was so, so um, blown away by the work that's done at Emory to deal with diseases like Ebola, and there's no reason to think you cannot be doing the same thing given the chance with COVID-19. And I just wanted to uh, to say that while you're on the air with us, Doctor. So, so Emory is, is one of the leaders in the country in, in uh, COVID research. We have almost $100 million in extramural grants. I think maybe the largest amount in the country from NIH and CDC. We're doing national surveys. We're doing uh, lots of other um, uh, things with COVID, and, and in, in addition to the therapy trials and the vaccine trials. So uh, we're proud to be involved uh, in our our doctors and nurses, of course, have cared for about 5,000 patients in the hospital with COVID. Hey, uh, Dr. Kern, um, on, on kind of on the, a similar topic there, I, I've, I was seeing a new, news report in the last couple of days coming out of Houston uh, about a very, uh, what, what looks like a major study on mutations to the coronavirus. Uh, what are the implications of, of that, both for, in, in terms of developing a, a vaccine that that stays? Are, are we headed towards something like the flu, flu vaccine where we're going to be doing this every single year? Well, I think we don't know. I, I, I think we don't want to assume that it's going to be like influenza until it's shown to be that way. Uh, Dr. Morin's commented on that. Dr. Morin's former colleague at CDC. Now he's at NIH, but he was involved with AIDS. And he rightfully said that, you know, mutations in viruses are extremely common. And until we know exactly what they mean, we shouldn't take them too seriously. Now, that didn't necessarily mean that they shouldn't be taken seriously. It's just that we don't know yet. And I think so that, that's going to be an important thing to follow up on. I think there's a lot of different concerns, and, and, and there's reason for wishful thinking. and there, I mean, optimism, but there's also reason for caution about what happens with COVID over the next few years. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a better virus to uh, deal with than HIV, which lasts for a lifetime. The wonderful thing about COVID is it only lasts three weeks. And uh, that means that anybody who's going to get hospitalized and die in November isn't even infected yet. And that's why South Korea and New Zealand and China can shut it down. Um, you know, that nobody who's going to get sick in November is infected yet in the whole country. So if we could stop it, you know, we could stop it completely. And New York almost did that. You know what, Dr. Lamb, and I'm, I'm turning to you in your medical professional hat, not your journalist hat right now. What, what Dr. Curran just said, really, I've never heard it quite framed that way before. I keep hearing uh, people say, public health people say, oh, you know, it isn't too late. We can deal with it. But the notion that a window as short as three weeks can make all the difference but we have to take all of the precautions that you in public health have been telling us to from the very beginning of this. That's right. I mean, it's, um, you know, we're, I think we're accustomed to thinking of, um, of the, the consequences of our actions as happening um, right after the action that we take. And actually, you know, three weeks in that kind of scenario is, is a long time and maybe a little bit longer than um, our little brains can actually <laughs> can actually absorb. But um, <laughs> so, but yeah, uh, you know, action that we take now. I mean, if everybody were capable of staying home for the next two or three weeks, really more than two weeks, three weeks, like you said, 
this, the whole thing would die out and go away. Unfortunately, you know, that's, it's not the reality that we can do that, but yeah, it's really, uh, when you think about it, a very, uh, we, we could with decisive action, thorough decisive action, make an enormous dent in, in the, the current, um, in the current trends of the virus, you know, but the, the thing is, we have this way of looking at it where we say if we if we do the thing and we and we decrease the flow enough, you know, and we decrease the caseload enough for a short time, then we can reopen completely uh, and and things will be fine. But we are we are that curve, you know. The second that you re you increase the risk on a couple of levels, you know, that curve starts going back up. It's and so we are just. It seems like we are having a really hard time wrapping our heads around the fact that the curve only stays low, you know, the cases only stay low if we continue to keep all of the protective measures in place for longer than three weeks. Um, I want to, uh, Jim, we're, we're getting a little short on time, but I want to go back to something Dr. Curran said and that you wrote about in that really terrific column you wrote. You know what, um, Amelia, why don't we find that column and put it up on our uh, website when you're writing about today's show? Because it was really a, an exceptional column, and Dr. Curran is quoted in it. Um, Jim, the only, to the best of my knowledge and your knowledge, I think, the only uh, uh, elected official uh, who has spoken out about uh, uh, the way in which CDC has been treated has been uh, who Hank Johnson? Uh, no, you've you've had a, you've had a number of of of, of Democrats speak out. Uh, I mean, on the in, well, on the state level, okay. you had Elena Perrin, you had Josh McLaurin. Uh, what you've lacked is uh, other than John Kennedy, State Senator John Kennedy of of Macon, who was on our on on the program. Uh, yep. with us yep. just last week. Uh, I have not heard a, a Republican yet come to the defense of the CDC, of, of, of just of the employees at the CDC and just, you know, you know, give them a, give them a pat on the back and an attaboy, if you will. Well, but OK, that's what I want to finish with. Dr. Curran, aside from being a cheerleader, it would be nice to have elected officials who are cheerleaders. But uh, but they also have an impact on uh, how the how uh, how funding for CDC goes, how the uh, how the agency is viewed uh, in Washington and beyond. It's it's their cheer. It would be great to have them as cheerleaders, but they have more value than that. Yes. Well, they, they need more funding instead of less, and they need to be able to be supported for yeah. the kinds of things they do. Uh, and, but the emotional part is, is quite important. It, it's, uh, they all yeah. know that public health is political. Everybody knows it's political, and everybody knows you have to balance uh, the economy and going to school and people's you know, uh, horrible other consequences of COVID, like depression and suicide and drug overdose. They know that. But what they don't want is to have – to be be treated like they're enemies that you know if they say that this is a risk they don't want to say well you're just trying to scare us you're trying to uh, be you're a bad person you're a, you're a democrat my god you know i mean most of them aren't even uh, you know aren't even partisan at all and and so what they need to do is have their work respected you know like everyone else in society that's about it. Uh, Dr. Curran, you've got the last word of today's show, which is only appropriate because it really has been an honor to uh, have you join us. Uh, thank you so much and continued success in your work uh, at Rollins uh, in terms of the virus. Dr. Karen Landman, really a pleasure to have you with us as well. Thank you for being here. Uh, Galloway, I hope you have a good weekend. Get out there in your garage, do some woodwork to try to take your mind off of these really difficult times politically. Uh, that's it for us today. Uh, we'll be back with Dr. Raycott Wiki on Monday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and please just go out and get a flu shot. Take care, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>